Church, let's pray together. Father, we praise you for being a God that is creator, that you are the beauty of the earth. Father, you are supreme, you are ultimate, and as we acknowledge your presence, for you are everywhere, God, there is nowhere that we may go that you are not already there. Father, there's nothing that we can do to shield or hide ourselves from your presence, for you are a God that sees everything. The thoughts of our hearts, the intentions of our minds, Father, you know everything. And you still loved us. Lord, and we know these tr things to be true, as hard as they may be to, to appreciate, because your word declares them so. And Father, to this point, we have sung your praise, the creator God of the universe, acknowledging that, uh, that you are alone, God, that you are not only God in one, but you are God three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit distinguishing yourself from all other created gods, you alone stand above all, Lord. And as we turn now to the word that you have given to us, that you spoke when it was inscribed by men many, many years ago, Lord, and yet which has stood the test of time and continues to reflect absolute truth, you have been faithful to all of your promises, Lord. And as we, your people, ground our belief in who you are upon this word which you have spoken, the living word who is Christ dwelling within us, your people. Father, we ask that you would once again today feed us. Father, for none can live except on this bread, life's bread, you. And Father, I ask that what we hear today would be what you intend God, that we would be faithful to your word and our understanding of it. God, that you would guard from our minds those things that point and shine the emphasis upon ourselves rather than seeing the service for what it is, a, a glorifying of the one who alone is worthy, and that's you, Jesus. And so, God, we ask now that you would guide our time and be the focus for your glory. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, if you have your Bibles, would you find with me, turn to the start of the story, to the Bible's first book, the book of Genesis, as the slide behind me indicates. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Now, on Wednesday evenings, when I'm with the RAs, and that's our third through sixth grade boys who gathered together to study scripture, to learn about missions, and in general, have an absolute blast. When I'm with our RAs, we have a race to see who can find the text that we're going to study each week first. And we'll have our hands, and we'll put our hands on our Bibles, and you'll see these little third through sixth grade boys' faces, eager anticipation to see who may be first. And we've had several torn pages in the haste that we've evidenced to find where we'll be that night. But the moment the reference is made, it is, as you can imagine, a mad dash to see who will get there first. Now, it's true, sometimes our, our races more closely resemble marathons, or, or at least 5Ks, because we're in some obscure minor prophet like Haggai or Hosea. Other times, it is a true middle distance, as we're in a more familiar text like 1 Kings or Psalms, Romans even. 
then there's days like today where we're simply sprinting for all we're worth. Because no matter how familiar or unfamiliar you may be with the Bible, we can all find, and you should have already done so, the book of Genesis. First book in the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1, which reads thus, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Church, I've been looking forward. I've been looking forward to this new year and to this new series for months. Really, last summer, because I'd shared from Genesis at the International Mission Board retreat for incoming freshmen that Melinda and I have been allowed to help with for the past several years. And as I was preparing, then I told her that I felt that this had to be the subject of our next study. But my wife, being wise, pointed out the season then that we were entering, which was the fall, how Genesis has some 50 chapters and how your pastor is long-winded. And so there was no way that we would be finished with Genesis by Christmas. And she's right. So she suggested, and sweetly, uh, but insightfully, we begin or make Genesis our starting point in 2020. So here we are, beginning the new year with a new sermon series focused on the beginning of the story, the story. And you know, I found interesting as I was preparing, as familiar as we may all be with this beginning, few pastors, at least of those whom I respect as gospel preachers, but few pastors have attempted what we're about to attempt. That is a journey through Genesis. Surprising? Telling, maybe? Yeah. There's possibly reasons why few have tried what we're about to embark on. And you may feel free to share with me your concerns when we get to about chapter 48 or so. But for today, we're fresh and we're in chapter 1, verse 1. Whereas I read moments ago, our author informs us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, before we examine what I consider to be the threefold purpose of this starting statement, starting statement to the story, I believe that we need to establish some ground rules. Ground rules regarding authorship, authorial intent, style, and our hermeneutical approach. In other words, we need to start by acknowledging our preconceptions so that we might avoid anachronistic interpretation. So let me explain what I mean. We all live in the post-enlightenment period, and this bears heavily on how we approach Scripture. In truth, it bears heavily on how we approach all of life. But for our purposes today, we need to recognize, had we lived prior to Rene Descartes, John Locke, David Hume, and Charles Darwin, among others, then we wouldn't be tempted as we approach this story to see in Genesis a scientific rationale of the earth's origins. Because prior to Descartes, whom I'm sure we all remember from high school history or college history, prior to Descartes, that was the French philosopher who in his desperation to grasp the essence of truth and understand God, grounded reality, grounded reality in humanity's capacity to think. So we think, therefore we are. Descartes' famous dictum, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. So prior to Descartes, Creation existed and was understood to be real because the creator, God, had declared it so. 
God said it. So it was. However, Cartesian rationalism flipped this order on its head such that existence and knowledge now began with the creature, the person who by their ability could conceive a creator. So where before people had seen God's word as divine revelation, establishing truth and upholding reality, now the creature approached scripture and decided whether it squared with reality as they conceived it. And it was consistent. Scripture was consistent with truth as they defined it. Now, we don't live in the days of Descartes, but we are still heavily influenced by his philosophy as evidenced, I believe, by many Christians, many Christ followers' sense of burden when speaking to their non-Christian friends of trying to prove that the Bible is true. Just take the Genesis creation account, for example. So many believers feel compelled to demonstrate scientifically how God made the heavens and earth in six days in order to prove that the Bible is true and thus their faith is viable. And we forget that Moses, the author of this story, the Genesis account, he didn't view the world as we do. He had no conception of Darwinian evolution or Lockean empiricism. Moses, he didn't reject as real anything that he couldn't observe, measure, and then dissect. But we do. At least we're taught that we should, aren't we? And now don't hear your pastor decrying science. I'm far from it. All of my undergraduate work was in sciences, biologies and chemistry. So I'm not anti-science. I simply want us this morning to understand that we each have lenses through which we view and then interpret life. And the lenses aren't bad, per se, but they're not ultimate. The lenses aren't ultimate, and therefore we've got to be aware of them as we approach a text, any text, particularly God's Word. In essence, we can't read this story through our 21st century lenses and be faithful to the author's intended purpose if we don't consider the author and his style. So, as I mentioned, our author is Moses. At least this is who I believe wrote Genesis and the other four books that compose the, the Pentateuch, namely Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, I'm not alone in my opinion. I share this belief in common with other biblical authors and characters, chief among them Jesus Christ, so we're in good company, as well as most every early church leader and most recent evangelicals. Now, there have been numerous opponents, as you can imagine, to this position over the years, but in my opinion, the argument for Mosaic authorship presents the most compelling case. And here's why this is important as we get started, church. If the Pentateuch, if this story had multiple authors, then it would, it would be hard. Not impossible, but it would be harder to evaluate authorial intent as we seek to piece this story together. But if Moses wrote it all, then it becomes readily apparent that he wasn't simply documenting random events. He was telling a story. He wasn't providing a scientific explanation of the earth's origin. He was recording history as it occurred with a purpose conveyed by the things he documented, those he didn't, and how he went about it. Meaning, did he tell it in a narrative? Or, or did he rhyme it in a poem? And so to manage our expectations from the outside, outset this morning, if you're hoping as we approach the story of Genesis to get definitive argumentation for, say, young earth creationism or old earth 
creationism or even theistic evolution, then you're going, you're going to be disappointed. Because while cases can and have been made for these and other understandings of the world's beginning, I don't think that this is what Moses, under God's Spirit's inspiration, was trying to convey. No, he certainly addressed Earth's origins and how all that is came into being ex nihilo, meaning from nothing. But I believe Moses was focused on something bigger, much, much bigger, more complex than even Genesis as a story alone tells. For Genesis itself is only the beginning of a story which, as it pertains to Moses' contributions, ends at the close of Deuteronomy. But as we know, even there, that's not the end of the story, is it? And so I don't say this to indicate where our next sermon series may lead as we wade through the Pentateuch in its entirety, no. But I want us to recognize, and we're going to make regular allusion to this, so be prepared. But what I want us to recognize this morning is how what we'll see in Genesis fits into this bigger narrative. And since Moses composed all five books of the Pentateuch, he wasn't writing five separate stories. Rather, he's writing a single story intent on displaying to his readers the inerrant connection between the past and the future where the God who spoke in the beginning did so with the future in mind. And so I believe Moses intended the Genesis story to reveal God and his relationship to his people. And thus, the seed of Abraham in the Genesis promise narratives is the future redeemer king of the Pentateuch's later poems, which we know now, our author didn't know it, but we know found their fulfillment in who? Jesus. And in his first coming, we just celebrated two weeks past. So, church, I believe that Moses wrote this book in order to tell all who would read it about the God who created the world and people's place in his creation. And since Moses did this with his eyes fixed on the future as he was documenting the past, we're going to employ a hermeneutic or an interpretive approach. We're going to take an approach to interpreting this, which one scholar describes as a prophetic reading of the historical narratives. Put simply, we're going to read this book, the stories, as narrative texts of past events presented as pointers to events that are yet future, which I'm convinced is what Scripture's principal author intended. Now, I recognize to this point we've covered a lot of introductory material, none of which draws directly on our text in front of us, but all of which I maintain is essential if we are to rightly understand these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So let's look more closely then at the story's opening statement, which if you recall, I said at the beginning, has a threefold intent, I believe, threefold intent. The first of which is to identify the creator, to identify the creator. He's the subject of this sentence. In the beginning, God created. Where the God who is named here is so, in the original language of the Old Testament, as Elohim. E-L-O-H-I-M. If you wanted to make a note to self, make a circle around God in your Bible or in your notes as you're doing this and write a little line to the side. Elohim. It's a plural form in the Hebrew of the noun Eloah, which was just a general term for any deity. Any deity, just small g God. And so it would seem 
at the outset, our author doesn't sense the need to elaborately describe and distinguish this deity from any of the others that his readers may have known about. He appears confident that there could be no mistaking his subject, Elohim, for any but the God that his story later reveals is the God of the patriarchs, who is also the God of the covenant that's made on Mount Sinai. And I say those two issues specific because Moses doesn't directly introduce verse 1's creator God any more specifically than as Elohim for a full 15 chapters. We have to get to chapter 15 in Genesis before he finally captures Elohim's appearance to Abram in a vision in which he, this is God, makes the covenant with the patriarch Abraham and reveals in verse 7 of chapter 15 that I am the Lord. L-O-R-D, all caps. That's Yahweh who brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. And, and then it isn't until Exodus 20 that Moses repeats this form of direct introduction of Elohim as Yahweh when he details God's words spoken when establishing the covenant with Moses, the author, on Mount Sinai, which further reveals the creator's unique relationship to his people who've been called out from among all of his creation. So Moses confidently, albeit simply, introduces God as the subject here. And church, this might seem a very simple and obvious point, but I fear that we can so easily miss its significance. So easily miss its significance. Because how often do we hear that word God used in conversation today? For many in our culture, God is little more than an object used in a in expressing a, a, in a phrase that expresses shock or, or surprise. For others, that same term, God, is an all-powerful, it's a reference to an all-powerful, nebulous being, a spirit force, if you will, who indwells everything, is everywhere, and into which we all, one day in the future, will be absorbed somehow. And for still others, God is a distant, indifferent deity who, while sharing characteristics with the God described here in our text, differs so significantly when it comes to salvation as to be unrecognizable if you were to set them directly opposite Scripture's Elohim. Now, I doubt many, if any of us, hopefully, would be susceptible to these misunderstandings. However, there are many, I fear, in our churches, in our nation, who know God's name, and they even claim to be a part of God's family, but their God is clearly missing attributes that this story reveals compose our author's God, who is creator, who desires to dwell with his creation, and who cannot tolerate, he cannot abide sin. Sadly, there are many who, as we saw together last year in our study of Galatians, they use familiar language, but the gospel that they proclaim is no gospel at all, because the God they, they serve saves those who save themselves. And he honors good work because it obliges him to reward those who perform it. But, friends, that's not the God who was in the beginning, according to Moses. And we know this because just one chapter later, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, our author connects Elohim to Yahweh as he calls him the Lord God. So a single title, Yahweh Elohim. And it's this Lord God that Moses writes in chapter 12 called Abram. 
promising to bless him, to make his name great and to bless all nations through him. And then, as I mentioned, this Yahweh Elohim introduces or declares himself to be Yahweh. He, he then later rescues Abraham's descendants from Egypt, bringing them into the promised land before giving them a king, David, who he promised would have a son who would sit on his throne forever and that Isaiah declared would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I realize that's getting way outside of the, the context of our verse as well as the context that even the Pentateuch is telling. But the point is, Moses' use of this title reveals the God of our text, Genesis 1-1, to be the God who promised the patriarchs a good earth and who redeemed them from Egypt, the shepherd deliverer of Jacob's blessing who sent his son Jesus to save his people from their sins. Now that's all to come, but the connection is unmistakable. So I believe the purpose of our reference here, verse 1, Genesis 1-1 is to simply identify God as the creator of both the universe and the earth. Where as creator, God clearly stands outside of time. God stands outside of time. The beginning, so referenced as the point in which God created the heavens and the earth. It, that beginning serves two purposes here. The first of which is presently pertinent as it describes an extended but unspecified duration of time. That reference to the beginning, an extended but unspecified duration of time. And we see this because that word is used by our author also in chapter 10. And it's used in chapter 10 to describe the early part of a man named Nimrod's kingdom. Chapter 10, verse 10, we read how Nimrod was a mighty warrior. Nimrod's first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Calne in China. And that term centers there. In your Bibles, if you were following along, Genesis 10.10, that word centers translates the same word rendered beginning here in the beginning in Genesis 1. So what it is describing, that centers is describing in chapter 10 is the start of or the initial season of Nimrod's reign. This period, unspecified, but a period of time, unspecified in length. And this same word, again, is rendered or is used later on in the book of Job in chapter 8 and verse 7. And in chapter 8, verse 7, it's there used to describe the early part of Job's life before all of his misfortunes did. So for those of you familiar with the story of Job, before all of those misfortunes overtook him, verse 7 reads in Job 8, your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. So the beginnings there reflects that same word translated as beginning here, Genesis 1-1. And again, it's conveying this idea of an extended but unspecified period of time outside of which God exists. For in his very being, he's its creator. And thus prior to creating, there's no such measure. But when he created, it began. And church, I, I realize that such considerations can often seem heady, ethereal, and of little practical value. But think of this the next time you have cause for worry. If the God who created the heavens and the earth and who exists outside of the past, the present, and the future promises to work all things together for good, should we be fearful? 
Is it logical? Is it logical to be anxious about tomorrow? When the God who holds tomorrow in his hands promises to deliver us from all evil. Why, why would we not hold these words close? Do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns and yet... Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his or her life? Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Why, church, why would we not hold these words close? Unless, of course, we don't believe them, right? Because you either... You either take the God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth to be that and all that you know to exist by and for his good pleasure or you choose to qualify his existence by your own experiences at which point you've fallen prey to Descartes' folly and regardless of how awesome the God your, or your God ends up being, he, she, or it, it will not be the God of the Bible. Now, isn't it amazing how, how quick we are to doubt and how prone we are to flip life's order, making ourselves the creators and God our creation. And this just isn't who Moses introduces us to here. The creator God who, who, who exists outside of time and, and who has no equals as evidenced by what one commentator describes as the polemic against idolatry behind the words of verse 1. Which I love that picture. Because if God, following this argument, if God, Elohim, who is Yahweh, created the heavens and the earth, then Egypt's God, with whom Moses would have been very familiar, Egypt's God, Ra, those of the earth's other nations, couldn't have created it, could they? They had to be idols then, as the psalmist would later sing, that idols that are, are, made by, are made of silver and gold. They're made of hands by men. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have hands, but they can't feel. They have feet, but they can't walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their mouths. So there's no way that these Elohim could create anything. And this sentiment is consistent throughout the story as a whole when we get even outside of the Pentateuch because Jeremiah later draws, the prophet draws on Moses' sentiments here when he prophesied to an apostate Israel. Jeremiah said, the Lord, that's Yahweh, L-O-R-D caps, the Lord is the true God, Elohim. He is the living God, the eternal king. Jeremiah continued, these gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But God made the earth by his power. He formed the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. Church, now I realize that today few worship idols, as did the nations surrounding Israel when Moses first wrote these words. Few. But many do still bow before things that are not God and which certainly did not make heaven and earth. 
And one of the great tragedies of our postmodern society is this idea that truth is now a subjective reality. And where in Descartes' day, at least consensus dictated people's determination of truth. Today, you decide. And tomorrow, you can change your mind. <laughs> truth lies, as does beauty, in the eye and in the mind of the beholder. But friends, these lies are so unsatisfying, so unsatisfying, as all who cling to them can attest. You can't change the truth, no matter how hard you try, nor can you dismiss it. The truth remains the truth because it is as the one who determines it, who is God. So, here... His word this morning. There's only one God, the creator. And as I said, this is the first purpose of this opening statement, to identify the creator. The second purpose is to explain the world's origin. To explain the world's origin, which is in the creator. For prior to God's creating, there was nothing but God. The beginning of everything, even the beginnings Beginning began with Elohim's creating. Whereas the action here so described, the creation described, doesn't refer exclusively to making something from nothing, but, but that is the clear sense in which it's employed as evidenced by what is created. The heavens and the earth. And that phrase is a, in the original language of the Old Testament was a, a figure of speech, one that we today refer to as a merism, which is simply when one single thing is referred to by a phrase. So here, heavens and earth describes everything. And thus, if God created everything, then he had to begin with nothing, because before he created everything, all there was was God, because he alone was in the beginning. And church, this truth regarding the world's origin, again, isn't unique to Moses' account given us here in Genesis. This David shares this same sentiment in Psalm 33 when he writes, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all their host by the breath of his mouth. And then we get to the New Testament, and Paul conveys the same truth when he wrote to the church in Colossae, as he declared, For by him, now him, Paul is referencing Christ, God the Son, but by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, Paul culminates by saying, all things were created by him and for him. And therefore, as we look at this story's opening statement, I believe our author wanted to establish from the start that God is the creator. And not only is he the creator, but he is supreme over all. He is supreme over all everything that he made because that which he created came from nothing he, he didn't start with pre-existing chaos as some biblical scholars like to argue suggesting that what Moses intended here by this opening sentence was simply to set God as the fashioner of order out of the formless heavens and earth which would imply that matter is in itself eternal and that only God's creative act separates the two God from matter and since we are composed of matter, and as matter advances, it then would have the potential, being eternal like God, to possibly surpass the Creator, much like a child can surpass their parent. But besides these arguments being ridiculous, ridiculously egocentric, they fail to account for the whole story and how consistently the world's origin is explained as being ex 
nihilo, meaning just from absolutely nothing, which sets up our story's creator as eternal, sovereign God, whose work in the past is tied to his work in the future. It's the final purpose, I believe, of this introductory statement, to tie God's work in the past to his work in the future. And I believe that this is conveyed, and we spoke about this with our children. It's, it's conveyed by that first verse's three words, initial three words, in the beginning. Because as I said, that phrase, in its original language of the Old Testament, that phrase in its original conveyed this sense of a period of time that was unspecified, but which pointed towards an anticipated end. And so in a more scholarly way of saying this, one commentator writes, if the author had wanted only to say that the heavens and earth were created first in a series, he would have used the Hebrew term barisona. Thus, his use of resit, the word that he chose, in 1 verse 1 strongly suggests that the author is motivated by its association with arit, the word that means end. And that, if that is so, and I, I think it is, it suggests that an intentional anticipation of the end, the arit, lies behind the author's choice of the word beginning. Put simply, Moses had multiple word options before him when he started the story. But he intentionally picked one demonstrating that what took place in the beginning did so with an end in sight. And church, that's something I don't think you have to be a Hebrew scholar or even familiar with the language to understand. When we read stories with a beginning, when we pick up a book just as we showed the children, we know there's an end. We know. For us, this idea that anything exists open-ended without direction or design, it's the folly of secular philosophy where humanity has no other purpose than what can be enjoyed in the moment because as Richard Dawkins, the famous British atheist, insists, for them the essence of life is statistical improbability on a colossal scale. Put bluntly, you are evidence of blind luck. And for, for these and those who share their beliefs, humanity's story is not a story. It's just a mistake. And I think this is why so much of our world is evidencing chaos. Because who can stomach the notion that they mean absolutely nothing? You just happen to be here by chance. Kudos. Have you been struggling to find purpose for your life? Did you get excited as this new year grew closer that maybe this year, maybe this year I can turn things around, find the joy that life's been missing, the, the fulfillment that has eluded me to this point. And yet five days in, you're already disillusioned. Your resolutions trashed, discouragement seeping back in. Friend, if so, hear the hope that's held out by God's word. You had a beginning. And you, you, will have an, you will have an end. You will have an end. But these aren't irrelevant points on a line of eternal indifference. They are realities God called into being. God, the creator of all, brought about your present. And he offers you a glorious future. But not because you're awesome. Because you're not. Not a one of us is. We're all broken. And if we're honest, then we can admit it. We don't deserve what God offers us, but he graciously offers us life with him. Why? Because he's our creator 
And as Paul said in those words that I read earlier from Colossians, he made us for himself. So we do have a purpose. And it's not about me. It's all about him, as we'll see as we get a little further into this story that we'll be studying together. So if you're here this morning, and maybe this is the first time that you've ever heard that your life has significance far greater, far greater than your own personal satisfaction or broader than your own philanthropic potential. If this is the first time, I would love to speak with you a little bit later to explain how you can know this God. And church, for those of us who know this God, would we make this year's resolution getting to know Him better as He has revealed Himself to us in His Word? Would you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks and praise. That you have given us your word. Father, that you've not left us alone in the sense that we had to conceive of you as, as you might be based upon what we could observe from creation. Although there is in what has been made evidence enough that not a one of us is without excuse. Not a one of us may put forth the argument, but I didn't know there was a God. Because what is all around us cries out to the existence of a creator. But God, we could not know you on our own. The order doesn't begin with us coming to an understanding of who you are based on our ability to reason. The fact that we may reason reflects our being made in your image. And we are dead because of our sin. And the only way that we could know you is that you would reveal to us who you are. And you have done so, God, in your word. But more than just revealing yourself to us, God, you came as one of us. For that was the only way that we could have life and be in relationship with you. You sent your son, Jesus. And just as this story has begun in a single sentence, teaching us of a beginning and pointing us toward an end. God, that end will come, and we sang about it earlier, on which day every knee will bow and sing praises to the King. Whether they want to or not, they will involuntarily proclaim you to be who you are, for you are ultimate. But God, before that day comes, we have been given the gracious privilege of being your people and of, of sharing the gospel message that anyone who believes and repents of their sin may be a part of your family. God, you sent Christ Jesus and we, just two weeks past, celebrated his first coming. Lord, and in a moment as we, your church, point our, our minds and fix our minds <coughs> on the table that is before us, we are going to celebrate again the covenant into which we have been brought, a new covenant that you established, Jesus, so that we might live in relationship with you, knowing that our present is an eternal present and that we'll one day be realized fully, though now it is as seeing through a glass darkly. Then we will see you face to face. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how in your word you make clear to us who you are and how we might live in relationship with you. Father, as we now 
turn our minds and our attention to the table. God, we ask that you would forgive us. Forgive us for the many ways that we fail to be your people. For how quickly we doubt and do what we've described and seen described and flip the order and allow ourselves to evaluate who you are by what we can see and think rather than allowing what you have revealed to be our, our foundation. God, forgive us. Thank you that your grace is sufficient and that you do forgive us when we come and confess. Not because we in our confession oblige you to anything, but we claim that promise because it's one that you have made and that you are always faithful to do what you have promised to do. So God, thank you for your forgiveness. Father, we ask now that as we share this cup and we share this bread together, that we would do so remembering the price that this story describes of how we might be given life and how we are so undeserving of it. Lord, might we rest and be reminded of the significance, the essential role the gospel plays for us as your church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.